Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and this week I will bring you on a journey through the supernatural in a few very different ways. Let's kick off this episode the way we always do, with an iTunes review. Takes Me Back in Time by K.S. Anglesey As a young child, my father would read me to sleep. Listening to stories of your and yours is like a grown-up version of bedtime stories. Get a glass of wine and a fluffy blanket, snuggle into a comfy bed or easy chair, let the soothing voice of Sean Ennis take you back to a time where there were no worries, no bills to pay, no job to go to, just you and the stories and the pictures they paint in your head. Many thanks to K.S. Anglesey for the review, and of course, you can leave a review and have it read on the show. Just leave that review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, I read these reviews in the order in which they were received, and in a nice bit of synergy, K.S. Anglesey has two stories featured on this week's episode. But first, remember, in addition to leaving a review, you can also get in touch with the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at Podcast. You can contact me through any of those methods, or through syypodcast.com, with requests or your own original short story. I enjoy talking with everybody, so don't be shy. And if you want to support the show, following on social media is a great way to do that. Leaving reviews is an excellent way to do that. Spreading the word is a great way to do it. And joining our Patreon is a great way to do it. You can do that over at patreon.com syypodcast. Over on the Patreon, among other things, I'll be doing at least one bonus episode per month between seasons. And already, there's a couple of stories posted as early bonuses. Now, before we get into this week's authors and stories, let's hear once more about Livestream for the Cure from Nick and Justin and Loisauce, otherwise known as the Epic Film Guys. I'm Nick. I'm Justin. And I'm Brian. And we're the hosts of the Epic Film Guys podcast. With the Livestream for the Cure coming May 17th, we want to know what's, what's your, your story? story? The Livestream for the Cure is a charity event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute for a future free of all forms of cancer. It's also a celebration of those we've loved, those we've lost, and those who continue to fight. This event is so much bigger than just our little show. It's about all of us and how we've been affected by cancer. Throughout the 40-hour Livestream for the Cure, we'll be sharing your photos and stories so we can honor who we're fighting for. Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com slash what's your story and learn how you can share your story with us. Together, we can make a difference. Livestream for the Cure is coming up in just a couple of weeks on May 17th to 19th, and my time slot is Saturday, May 18th at 10 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, so make sure you tune in then and show your support for a cancer-free future. In addition to my time slot, there will be games, there will be prizes for those who donate, so come and give to a good cause and show out for the fans of Stories of Your and Yours. Now, unfortunately, it's another windy day here at Stories of Your and Yours headquarters, so you may hear a little bit of wind in the background of the intro and outro, but during the story, you won't hear that at all. So now, let's get into this week's show. First up, we're going to have two original stories by K.S. Anglesey. K.S. Anglesey loved stories at a young age. She'd pile her picture books by the hallway nightlight long after her parents tucked her into bed, 
and during the day she'd haul them outside to read to her friend Tree. Now she writes and hopes her stories will bring someone as much joy as she has found reading those written by others. The two stories we'll present this week are entitled Saving Sasquatch and Your Application Has Been Processed. If you want to see more from K.S. Anglesey, you can find her at ksanglesey.com, at ksanglesey on Twitter, and at k.s.anglesey on Facebook. And Anglesey is spelled A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. Of course, you'll also find all those links in the show notes for this week. As of the recording of this episode, I didn't have quite enough original stories to fill it, so I found another supernatural story to go with the two that'll be kicking things off. That story is called The Signal Man, and it was written by Charles Dickens. I imagine you've probably heard of Charles Dickens, as he's one of the more well-known English-language authors ever to pick up a writing implement, but let's get into just a little bit of background on Dickens and on his story. Charles John Huffman Dickens was born on February 7, 1812, in Landport, Hampshire, England. He left school when he was just 12 years old to work in Warren's Blacking Factory, which was a boot polish factory. He did this to help support the family when his father was thrown in debtor's prison. The experience would influence his writing in later life, as can easily be seen in his portrayals of the burdens borne by the working class of the day, including children who had to work under pretty awful conditions. Dickens returned to school, but did not find the conditions of the Wellington House Academy to be to his liking. And in fact, he based the school in David Copperfield on this establishment. Dickens would work as a law clerk and a freelance reporter after completing his schooling. He had been a voracious reader as a child, and during this time was also an avid theater-goer. He actually intended to audition to become an actor in 1832, but didn't end up making the audition due to illness, and before he could reschedule, he had already decided to pursue a career in writing. He submitted his first story, A Dinner at Poplar Walk, in 1833 to the Monthly Magazine in London. He would continue to write and contribute to journals and periodicals for a few more years before he started publishing the Pickwick Papers in 1836. This would be his first big hit, which actually didn't become all that popular until after the fourth installment. Longtime listeners and those in the know may recall that publishing books in installments was not uncommon in those days, and that fourth installment was the beginning of a rise in popularity for Dickens. He published Oliver Twist after the Pickwick Papers, and then he was off and running. Dickens also married Catherine Hogarth in 1836, which marriage would last 22 years until 1858, when Dickens became infatuated with a young actress that he hired to star in a play that he wrote with Wilkie Collins. As a side note, you'll recall Wilkie Collins wrote the story that I read with Interrupted Tales a couple of weeks ago. Now at this time, Dickens was 45, and the actress, Ellen Ternan, was 18. So, this was pretty scandalous. Although... As it was unheard of in the day to be divorced, Dickens and his wife were merely separated and not officially divorced. Dickens started doing reading tours not long after this, and though sometimes we see authors start to wane in their popular output during their later years, Dickens released A Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations, both huge successes and well-known works to this day, in 1859 and 1861 respectively. Now, as is usually the case here, we're going to keep the biographical notes pretty brief because, well, we're here for the stories. So to close the book, as it were, on Charles Dickens, he suffered a stroke in June of 1870 and died at the age of 58. Today's story, The Signal Man, was published in 1866 in the Christmas edition of the magazine All the Year Round. This issue of All the Year Round featured a collection of short stories called Mugby Junction, which was a set of stories written by Dickens, Amelia B. Edwards, Andrew Halliday, and Hesba Stretton. Speaking of Amelia B. Edwards, we talked about her and about All the Year Round in episode 25 of season 1. 
that featured The Phantom Coach, which was written by Edwards. So if you'd like a history on that periodical, be sure to check out that episode if you haven't done so yet. Before we get started with the stories for this week, I do want to take a minute and talk about what exactly a signal man is. Signal men and signal women would use flags and handheld lanterns to help control the traffic of trains. Of course, that's all done by computer now, but at the time of this story, it was a very important job. So, those are the intros and a little bit of background. And now, let's get into this week's presentation. Saving Sasquatch by K.S. Anglesey Scents lingered in the air, forest fire and cinnamon. The cinnamon could have been all in my head, a subconscious implantation of the pink sun, simmering behind the ash and poison masquerading as clouds. A fire demon must have possessed my dad, hijacking rationality and taking his thoughts hostage to the idea of going fishing in that apocalyptic environment. Trevor, this river is wild. My dad stared at me hard, waiting for evidence the words had gone deep and not just glanced through the space between my ears. It twists and turns and bucks, and once you're in it, all you can do is hold on. I nodded, and he thrust our gear at me before turning to attend the raft. I studied the raft and wondered what exactly I'd be holding on to, as if in response the wind pushed over the hilltop. There was whispering from the leaves of quaking aspens and groans from the lodgepole pines. Dad, I don't think the fish are going to be biting today. Normally I like fishing, but that day everything was wrong. The short hairs on the back of my neck danced the wicked tango, and my breakfast hungered like a rotting corpse in my stomach. We're not here to fish, Dad said. But you said... I know, but your mom never would have let you come if she knew what I'm here for. I can't even believe I'm going to ask you to do this. He put his hands on my shoulders and leaned down, his nose almost touching mine. I need your help. I nodded. He took our gear back, dropped it in the raft, and motioned me in. You know those stories Uncle George tells when he's had too much to drink? The one about Bigfoots? I settled on the bottom of the raft as he pushed it out into the current and jumped in. Feet. He grabbed the paddle and settled in front of the raft. What? Never mind. He shook his head and waved his free hand like he was erasing a chalkboard. The point is... They're real. I had the impulse to jump out and swim for shore. My dad had gone certifiable. But the current was strong and we were moving fast. If I'd have jumped out, the odds of reaching shore were low. My hesitation robbed me of the moment as the raft careened away from the put-in point. The riverbanks were growing steeper and more overgrown with each passing second. Maybe if I kept him talking, I could get him to come back to reality. We're in a raft heading toward a fire because Bigfoots are real? I had to shout to be heard over the river. I know how that sounds, but the fire's too close to their home and they won't leave because they might be seen, so they need help. You're going to have to draw them out because they won't come out for me. Why won't they come out for you? He answered, but the rush of the river was building to a crescendo and I couldn't make out the words. I think he said I was short. What kind of weirdo brings his kid out into the wilderness to get killed and then calls him short? The raft bucked as we were sucked into the pink rage of the rapids. I hoped the roaring ahead wasn't a waterfall. On the heels of that thought, I caught air and the next thing I knew I was underwater. I should have been going up, but the current was pushing me down. Panic filled my lungs. I needed air. Fighting for the surface, my feet hit bottom and a wave of terror seized me as I realized the current is pushing me into a hole. Ball up. The remembered rafting lesson exploded into the crowd panic happening in my brain. Pulling my knees up to my chest, I prayed it would work. The lift happened immediately. I popped out of the water like a beach ball and gasped for breath. 
Trying to tread water, I splashed around, looking for the raft. Before I found it, I saw the waterfall up ahead. When I turned to the raft, Dad had his hands at the sides of his mouth like he was shouting at me, but I couldn't hear anything over the river. Mad with fear, I flailed, trying to get to the bank. It was no use. The current drug me toward the drop, and right before I went over, I felt my breakfast in my throat. One second I was floating, the next I was falling. I closed my eyes and hoped it wouldn't hurt. When the falling stopped, the landing didn't make sense. There should have been a splash. The surface of the water should have given my body a battering. I should have been under water again, but I was dangling. Water pelting my head and shoulders. The pelting stopped after I was moved behind the waterfall, accosted by the stench of a thousand wet dogs and staring at a couple dozen yellow eyes, all watching me from hairy faces. Before I had the chance to process, there was a yelp as the raft and my father flashed past. Dad! I squirmed to get loose. One of the other Bigfoots dived after him. I could feel myself slipping from the one that had me, but it pulled me close. I struggled more. The smell of the thing was nauseating. The Bigfoot that had me jumped too, and moments later I was in the water again. It held me for a few seconds, but I wriggled free and surfaced to see a Bigfoot pulling my dad ashore. He was bleeding. Dad! Trevor, are you alright? Yeah, I think so. The smoke was thicker there, and the air stung my lungs. You're bleeding, I said. Persephone will help me. I'll be fine, he wheezed. Where's Donovan? I thought he came down with you. Don, uh, they have names? I looked around for the other Bigfoot. At first I didn't see it, then something dark in the water caught my attention. It's still under. He. He is still under. Are you seriously correcting my grammar? Help him! <coughs> Dad started coughing. <coughs> he saved your life, now help him! <coughs> right. I jumped back in and swam over to the dark shape floating just below the surface. How I was supposed to help a Bigfoot was beyond me. I grabbed what looked like an arm and started pulling. It didn't budge. Diving down, I realized its hair had gotten tangled in an underwater tree. It took a couple of dives before I got him free. Getting the thing to the shore wasn't too hard, but pulling him up, that was another story. Dad, he's too heavy. My dad only groaned. There was a branch stuck in his side. Where'd what's-her-name go? I heard something snap, and the other Bigfoot came back, spitting something green and slobbery into her hand. I cringed as she smeared it around where the branch was sticking out of my dad. Better. Oh, that's better, he said. Persephone came over and heaved Donovan out of the water. I'm pretty sure I saw worry on her face, and she looked back and forth between my dad and Donovan like she was trying to decide. CPR, my dad said before he went into a coughing fit. He coughed up blood. Persephone went to him and did something to stop the coughing. Trevor, help him, my dad said again. You want me to give CPR to a Wookiee? I really didn't want to put my mouth on the hairy guy. Sasquatch! Dad screamed, mostly because Persephone was pulling the branch from his side. She looked at me, holding the bloody branch. Sorry, Sasquatch. I knelt and pumped Donovan's chest. Persephone went back to working on my dad while I deliberated whether the breathing part of CPR is entirely necessary, but the pumping didn't seem to be doing anything. I thought back, trying to calculate how long Donovan was under. I resigned to doing it and shifted up by his head, tilting it back and pinching his nose. I leaned forward and opened my mouth. Suddenly there was a gurgling sound and I got a face full of whatever was in Donovan's lungs and stomach by the smell of it. Spitting and sputtering, I scampered back to the water to clean off. 
As I turned to see what was happening, I was lifted off the ground and crushed up against a fur coat. They smelled less like wet dog when they were wet. When I got free again, Dad was sitting up and looking decent for a guy who was just impaled. Now what? I asked. Now, we save Sasquatch. Application has been processed by K.S. Anglesey. The heavy, unpainted metal door grated and squealed when I pried it open, as if ages had passed since anyone had used it. Unmarked, set back in shadows, and facing the alley, it was the only one that corresponded with the address on the document I'd received. Inside, I made my way along a winding hallway, lit by a single flickering bulb, with a broken concrete floor and red paint all over the walls. Finding at the end a reception room where a life-size animatronic Barbie doll smiled at me over the counter, my decision to personally resolve the discrepancies in my application wavered. A cheery voice issued from the doll. Please state the reason for your visit, and your concern will be addressed in the order it was received. I glanced around the otherwise empty room. Isn't there a real person here I can talk to? There was a mechanical hum and the click as the doll's head tilted and the eyelids opened and closed. This office has employed 42 processing agents for over a century. Your application will be processed in two to four weeks. Thank you for your patience. Uh, that's great. Um, can I talk to a processing agent? I asked, noting a shadowy movement through the translucent glass of the door behind the doll. Your query does not meet requirements. You may submit questions with a Q90 form, which can be obtained online. It blinked again. I'd come to clear things up, not argue with a machine. Sizing up the animatronic, I decided. If it could move from where it stood, it wouldn't move fast. A quick jump and a lunge later, I stood staring at the bizarre sight behind the door. Papers, applications, floated from one desk to another. Stamps and pens at each desk moved in rhythm. Before I could fully comprehend the ghostly scene, the animatronic caught hold of me and hauled me out of the building. It blinked at me from the doorway and in a deep voice said, You have violated Protocol S-15. Your application has been denied. Then the cheery voice returned. Have a nice day, it said, just before slamming the door in my face. Standing there, staring at the old door, I realized my father was right. Trying to fund my paranormal research through this agency was a dead end. The Signal Man, by Charles Dickens. Hello! Below there! When he heard a voice thus calling to him, he was standing at the door of his box with a flag in his hand, furled round its short pole. One would have thought, considering the nature of the ground, that he could not have doubted from what quarter the voice came, but instead of looking up to where I stood, on the top of the steep cutting nearly over his head, he turned himself about and looked down the line. There was something remarkable in his manner of doing so, though I could not have said for my life what. But I know it was remarkable enough to attract my notice, even though his figure was foreshortened and shadowed, 
down in the deep trench, and mine was high above him, so steeped in the glow of an angry sunset that I had shaded my eyes with my hand before I saw him at all. Hello! Oh, below! From looking down the line, he turned himself about again, and raising his eyes, saw my figure high above him. Is there any path by which I can come down to speak to you? He looked up at me without replying, and I looked down at him without pressing him too soon with a repetition of my idle question. Just then there came a vague vibration in the earth and air, quickly changing into a violent pulsation, and an oncoming rush that caused me to start back, as though it had force to draw me down. When such vapor as rose to my height from this rapid train had passed me and was skimming away over the landscape, I looked down again and saw him refurling the flag he had shown while the train went by. I repeated my inquiry. After a pause during which he seemed to regard me with fixed attention, he motioned with his rolled-up flag towards a point on my level some two or three hundred yards distant. I called down to him, All right, and made for that point. There, by dint of looking closely about me, I found a rough zigzag descending path notched out, which I followed. The cutting was extremely deep and unusually precipitate. It was made through a clammy stone that became oozier and wetter as I went down. For these reasons I found the way long enough to give me a time to recall a singular air of reluctance or compulsion with which he had pointed out the path. When I came down low enough upon the zigzag descent to see him again, I saw that he was standing between the rails on the way by which the train had lately passed, in an attitude as if he were waiting for me to appear. He had his left hand at his chin, and that left elbow rested on his right hand, crossed over his breast. His attitude was one of such expectation and watchfulness that I stopped a moment, wondering at it. I resumed my downward way, and stepping out upon the level of the railroad and drawing nearer to him, saw that he was a dark, sallow man, with a dark beard and rather heavy eyebrows. His post was in as solitary and dismal a place as I ever saw. On either side, a dripping wet wall of jagged stone, excluding all view but a strip of sky, the perspective one way only a crooked prolongation of this great dungeon, the shorter perspective in the other direction terminating in a gloomy red light, and the gloomier entrance to a black tunnel, in whose massive architecture there was a barbarous, depressing, and forbidding air. So little sunlight ever found its way to this spot that it had an earthly, deadly smell, and so much cold wind rushed through it that it struck chill to me, as if I had left the natural world. Before he stirred, I was near enough to him to have touched him. Not even then, removing his eyes from mine, he stepped back one step and lifted his hand. This was a lonesome post to occupy, I said, and it had riveted my attention when I looked down from up yonder. A visitor was a rarity, I should suppose, not an unwelcome rarity, I hoped. In me, he merely saw a man who had been shut up within narrow limits all his life, and who being at last set free, had a newly awakened interest in these great works. To such purpose I spoke to him, but I am far from sure of the terms I used, for besides that I am not happy in opening any conversation, there was something in the man that daunted me. He directed a most curious look towards the red light near the tunnel's mouth, and looked all about it as if something were missing from it, and then looked at me. That light was part of his charge, was it not? He answered in a low voice, Don't you know it is? The monstrous thought came into my mind as I perused the fixed eyes and the saturnine face that this was a spirit, not a man. I have speculated since whether there may have been an infection in his mind. In my turn I stepped back, but in making the action I detected in his eyes some latent fear of me. This put the monstrous thought to flight. "'You look at me,' 
I said, forcing a smile, as if you had a dread of me. I was doubtful, he returned, whether I had seen you before. Where? He pointed to the red light he had looked at. There? I said. Intently watchful of me, he replied, but without sound. Yes. My good fellow, what should I do there? However, be that as it may, I never was there, you may swear. I think I may, he rejoined. Yes, I am sure I may. His manner cleared like my own. He replied to my remarks with readiness and in well-chosen words. Had he much to do there? Well, yes, that was to say he had enough responsibility to bear, but exactness and watchfulness were what was required of him, and of actual work, manual labor, he had next to none. To change that signal, to trim those lights, and to turn this iron handle now and then was all he had to do under that head. Regarding those many long and lonely hours of which I seemed to make so much, he could only say that the routine of his life had shaped itself into that form, and he had grown used to it. He had taught himself a language down here, if only to know by sight and to have formed his own crude ideas of its pronunciation could be called learning it. He had also worked at fractions and decimals and tried a little algebra. But he was, and had been as a boy, a poor hand at figures. Was it necessary for him when on duty to always remain in that channel of damp air, and could he never rise to the sunshine from between these high stone walls? Why, that depended upon times and circumstances. Under some conditions there would be less upon the line than others. And the same held good as to certain hours of the day and night. In bright weather he did choose occasions for getting a little above these lower shadows, but being at all times liable to be called by his electric bell, and at such times listening for it with redoubled anxiety, the relief was less than I would suppose. He took me into his box, where there was a fire, a desk for an official book in which he had to make certain entries, a telegraphic instrument with its dial, face, and needles, and the little bell of which he had spoken. On my trusting that he would excuse the remark that he had been well educated, and I hoped I might say without offense perhaps educated above that station, he observed that instances of slight incongruity in such wise would rarely be found wanting among the large bodies of men that he had heard it was so in workhouses, in the police force, even in that last desperate resource, the army, and that he knew it was so more or less in any great railway staff. He had been, when young, if I could believe it, sitting in that hut, he scarcely could, a student of natural philosophy, and had attended lectures, but he had run wild, misused his opportunities, gone down and never risen again. He had no complaint to offer about that. He had made his bed, and he lay upon it, it was far too late to make another. All that I have here condensed he said in a quiet manner, with his grave, dark regards divided between me and the fire. He threw in the word, sir, from time to time, and especially when he referred to his youth, as though to request me to understand that he claimed to be nothing but what I found him. He was several times interrupted by the little bell, and had to read off messages and send replies. Once he had to stand without the door and display a flag as a train passed, and make some verbal communications to the driver. In the discharge of his duties, I observed him to be remarkably exact and vigilant, breaking off his discourse at a syllable, and remaining silent until what he had to do was done. In a word, I should have set this man down as one of the safest of men to be employed in that capacity, but for the circumstance that while he was speaking to me, he twice broke off with a fallen color, turned his face towards the little bell when it did not ring, opened the door of the hut, which was kept shut to exclude the unhealthy damp, and looked out toward the red light near the mouth of the tunnel, 
On both of those occasions, he came back to the fire with the inexplicable air upon him which I had remarked, without being able to define, when we were so far asunder. Said I, when I rose to leave him, You almost make me think that I have met with a contented man. I am afraid I must acknowledge that I said it to lead him on. I believe I used to be so, he rejoined, in the low voice with which he had first spoken. But I am troubled, sir. I am troubled. He would have recalled the words if he could. He had said them, however, and I took them up quickly. With what? What is your trouble? It is very difficult to impart, sir. It is very, very difficult to speak of. If ever you make me another visit, I will try to tell you. But I expressly intend to make you another visit. Say, when shall it be? I go off early in the morning, and I shall be on again at ten tomorrow night, sir. I will come at eleven. He thanked me and went out at the door with me. I'll show my white light, sir, he said in his peculiar low voice, till you have found the way up. When you have found it, don't call out. And when you are at the top, don't call out. His manner seemed to make the place strike colder to me, but I said no more than very well. And when you come down tomorrow night, don't call out. Let me ask you a parting question. What made you cry, hello, below there, tonight? Heaven knows, I said. I cried something to that effect. Not to that effect, sir. Those were the very words. I know them well. Admit those were the very words. I said them, no doubt, because I saw you below. For no other reason? What other reason could I possibly have? You had no feeling that they were conveyed to you in any supernatural way? No? He wished me good night and held up his light. I walked by the side of the down line of rails, with a very disagreeable sensation of a train coming behind me, until I found the path. It was easier to mount than to descend, and I got back to my inn without any adventure. Punctual to my appointment, I placed my foot on the first notch of the zigzag next night, as the distant clocks were striking eleven. He was waiting for me at the bottom, with his white light on. "'I have not called out,' I said, when we came close together. "'May I speak now?' "'By all means, sir.' Good night, then, and here's my hand. Good night, sir, and here's mine. With that we walked side by side to his box, entered it, closed the door, and sat down by the fire. I have made up my mind, sir, he began, bending forward as soon as we were seated and speaking in a tone but a little above a whisper, that you shall not have to ask me twice what troubles me. I took you for someone else yesterday evening. That troubles me. That mistake? No. That's someone else. Who is it? I don't know. Like me? I don't know. I never saw the face. The left arm is across the face, and the right arm is waved, violently waved, this way. I followed his action with my eyes, and it was the action of an arm gesticulating with the utmost passion and vehemence. For goodness sake, clear the way. One moonlight night, said the man, I was sitting here when I heard a voice cry, Hello, below there. I started up, looked from that door, and saw this someone else, standing by the red light near the tunnel, waving as I just now showed you. The voice seemed hoarse with shouting, and it cried, Look out, look out, and then again, Hello, below there. Look out. I caught up my lamp, turned it on red, and ran towards the figure, calling, What's wrong? What has happened? Where? It stood just outside the blackness of the tunnel. I advanced so close upon it that I had wondered at its keeping the sleeve across its eyes. I ran right up at it. 
and had my hand stretched out to pull the sleeve away when it was gone. Into the tunnel? said I. No. I ran on into the tunnel five hundred yards. I stopped and held my lamp above my head and saw the figures of the measured distance and saw the wet stains stealing down the walls and trickling through the arch. I ran out again faster than I had run in, for I had a mortal abhorrence of the place upon me, and I looked all round the red light with my own red light, and I went up the iron ladder to the gallery atop it, and I came down again and ran back here. I telegraphed both ways, an alarm has been given, is anything wrong? And the answer came back both ways, all is well. Resisting the slow touch of a frozen finger tracing out my spine, I showed him how that this figure must have been a deception of his sense of sight, and how that figures, originating in the disease of the delicate nerves that ministered to the functions of the eye, were known to have often troubled patients, some of whom had become conscious of the nature of their affliction, and had even proved it by experiments upon themselves. As to the imaginary cry, said I, do but listen for a moment to the wind in this unnatural valley while we speak so low, and to the wild harp it makes of the telegraph wires. That was all very well, he returned, after we had sat listening for a while, and he ought to know something of the wind and the wires, he who so often passed long winter nights there, alone and watching, but he would beg to remark that he had not finished. I asked his pardon, and he slowly added these words, touching my arm. Within six hours after the appearance, the memorable accident on this line happened, and within ten hours, the dead and wounded were brought along the tunnel over the spot where the figure had stood. A disagreeable shudder crept over me, but I did my best against it. It was not to be denied, I rejoined, that this was a remarkable coincidence calculated deeply to impress his mind, but it was unquestionable that remarkable coincidences did continually occur, and they must be taken into account in dealing with such a subject, though to be sure I must admit I added, for I thought that he was going to bring the objection to bear upon me, men of common sense did not allow much for coincidences in making the ordinary calculations of life. He again begged to remark that he had not finished. I again begged his pardon for being betrayed into interruptions. This, he said, again laying his hand upon my arm and glancing over his shoulder with hollow eyes, was just a year ago. Six or seven months passed, and I had recovered from the surprise and shock, when one morning as the day was breaking, I, standing at the door, looked towards the red light and saw the specter again. He stopped with a fixed look at me. Did it cry out? No, it was silent. Did it wave its arm? No. It leaned against the shaft of light with both hands before the face, like this. Once more I followed his action with my eyes. It was an action of mourning. I have seen such an attitude in stone figures on tombs. Did you go up to it? I came in and sat down, partly to collect my thoughts, partly because it had turned me faint. When I went to the door again, daylight was above me, and the ghost was gone. But nothing followed, nothing came of this. He touched me on the arm with his forefinger twice or thrice, giving a ghastly nod each time. That very day, as a train came out of the tunnel, I noticed at a carriage window on my side what looked like a confusion of hands and heads, and something waved. I saw it just in time to signal the driver, stop. He shut off and put his brake on, but the train drifted past here a hundred and fifty yards or more. 
I ran after it, and, as I went along, heard terrible screams and cries. A beautiful young lady had died instantaneously in one of the compartments, and was brought in here and laid down on the floor between us. Involuntarily, I pushed my chair back as I looked from the boards at which he pointed to himself. True, sir, true. Precisely as it happened, so I tell you. I could think of nothing to say to any purpose, and my mouth was very dry. The wind and the wires took up the story with a long lamenting wail. He resumed. Now, sir, mark this, and judge how my mind is troubled. The specter came back a week ago. Ever since it has been there, now and again, by fits and starts. At the light? At the danger light. What does it seem to do? He repeated, if possible, with increased passion and vehemence, that former gesticulation of, for goodness sake, clear the way. Then he went on. I have no peace or rest for it. It calls to me for many minutes together, in an agonized manner, below there, look out, look out. It stands waving to me. It rings my little bell. I caught at that. Did it ring your bell yesterday evening when I was here, and you went to the door? Twice. Why, see, said I, how your imagination misleads you. My eyes were on the bell, and my ears were open to the bell, and if I am a living man, it did not ring at those times. No, nor at any other time, except when it was rung in the natural course of physical things by the station communicating with you. He shook his head. I have never made a mistake as to that yet, sir. I have never confused the specter's ring with the man's. The ghost's ring is a strange vibration in the bell that derives from nothing else and I have not asserted that the bell stirs to the eye. I don't wonder that you failed to hear it. But I heard it. And did the specter seem to be there when you looked out? It was there. Both times, he repeated firmly. Both times. Will you come to the door with me and look for it now? He bit his under lip as though he was somewhat unwilling, but arose. I opened the door and stood on the step, while he stood in the doorway. There was the danger light. There was the dismal mouth of the tunnel. There were the high, wet stone walls of the cutting. There were the stars above them. Do you see it? I asked him, taking particular note of his face. His eyes were prominent and strained, but not very much more so, perhaps, than my own had been when I had directed them earnestly toward the same spot. No, he answered. It is not there. Agreed, said I. We went in again, shut the door, and resumed our seats. I was thinking how best to improve this advantage, if it might be called one, when he took up the conversation in such a matter-of-course way, so assuming that there could be no serious question of fact between us, that I felt myself placed in the weakest of positions. By this time you will fully understand, sir, he said, that what troubles me so dreadfully is the question, what does the specter mean? I was not sure I told him that I did fully understand. "'What is it warning against?' he said, ruminating, and with his eyes on the fire, and only by times turning them on me. "'What is the danger? Where is the danger? There is danger overhanging somewhere on the line. Some dreadful calamity will happen. It is not to be doubted this third time after what has gone before. But surely this is a cruel haunting of me. What can I do?' He pulled out his handkerchief and wiped the drops from his heated forehead. If I telegraph danger on the other side of me, or on both, I can give no reason for it. He went on, wiping the palms of his hands. I should get into trouble and do no good. 
They would think I was mad. This is the way it would work. Message, danger, take care. Answer, what danger, where? Message, don't know, but for goodness sake, take care. They would displace me. What else could they do? His pain of mind was most pitiable to see. It was the mental torture of a conscientious man, oppressed beyond endurance by an unintelligible responsibility involving life. But when it first stood under the danger light, he went on, putting his dark hair back from his head and drawing his hands outward across and across his temples in an extremity of feverish distress. Why not tell me where that accident was to happen, if it must happen? Why not tell me how it could be averted, if it could have been averted? When on its second coming it hit its face, why not tell me instead, she is going to die, let them keep her at home? If it came on those two occasions, only to show me that its warnings were true, and so to prepare me for the third, why not warn me plainly now? And I, Lord help me, a mere poor signal man on this solitary station, why not go to somebody with credit to be believed and power to act? When I saw him in this state, I saw that for the poor man's sake, as well as for the public safety, what I had to do for the time was to compose his mind. Therefore, setting aside all question of reality or unreality between us, I represented to him that whosoever thoroughly discharged his duty must do it well, and that at least it was his comfort that he understood his duty, though he did not understand these confounding appearances. In this effort I succeeded far better than in the attempt to reason him out of his conviction. He became calm. The occupations incidental to his post, as the night advanced, began to make larger demands on his attention, and I left him at two in the morning. I had offered to stay through the night, but he would not hear of it. That I more than once looked back at the red light as I ascended the pathway, that I did not like the red light, and that I should have slept but poorly if my bed had been under it, I see no reason to conceal. Nor did I like the two sequences of the accident and the dead girl, I see no reason to conceal that either. But what ran most in my thoughts was the consideration how I ought to act, having become the recipient of this disclosure. I had proved the man to be intelligent, vigilant, painstaking, and exact, but how long might he remain so in his state of mind? Though in a subordinate position, he still held a most prominent trust, and would I, for instance, like to stake my own life on the chances of his continuing to execute it with precision? Unable to overcome a feeling that there would be something treacherous in my communicating what he had told me to his superiors in the company, without first being plain with himself and proposing a middle course to him, I ultimately resolved to offer to accompany him, otherwise keeping his secret for the present, to the wisest medical practitioner we could hear of in these parts, and to take his opinion. A change in his time of duty would come round the next night, he had apprised me, and he would be off an hour or two after sunrise, and on again soon after sunset. I had appointed to return accordingly. Next evening was a lovely evening, and I walked out early to enjoy it. The sun was not yet quite down when I traversed the field path near the top of the deep cutting. I would extend my walk for an hour, I said to myself, half an hour on one and half an hour back, and it would then be time to go to my signalman's box. Before pursuing my stroll, I stepped to the brink and mechanically looked down from the point from which I had first seen him. I cannot describe the thrill that seized upon me when, close at the mouth of the tunnel, I saw the appearance of a man, with his left sleeve across his eyes, passionately waving his right arm. The nameless horror that oppressed me passed in a moment, for in a moment I saw that this appearance of a man was a man indeed, and that there was a little group of other men, standing at a short distance, to whom he seemed to be rehearsing the gesture he made. The danger light was not yet lighted. 
Against its shaft, a little low hut, entirely new to me, had been made of some wooden supports and tarpaulin. It looked no bigger than a bed. With an irresistible sense that something was wrong, with a flashing self-reproachful fear that fatal mischief had come on my leaving the man there, and causing no one to be sent to overlook or correct what he did, I descended the notched path with all the speed I could make. What is the matter? I asked the men. Signal man, Gilda's morning, sir. Not the signal man belonging to that box. Yes, sir. Not the man I know. You will recognize him, sir, if you knew him, said the man who spoke for the others, solemnly uncovering his own head and raising an end of the tarpaulin, for his face is quite composed. Oh, how did this happen? How did this happen? I asked, turning from one to another as the hut closed in again. It was cut down by an engine, sir. No man in England knew his work better, but somehow he was not clear of the outer rail. It was just a broad day. He had struck the light and had the lamp in his hand. As the engine came out of the tunnel, his back was towards her, and she cut him down. That man drove her and was showing how it happened. Show the gentleman, Tom. The man, who wore a rough, dark dress, stepped back into his former place at the mouth of the tunnel. Coming around the curb in the tunnel, sir, he said. I saw him at the end, like as if I saw him down a perspective glass. There was no time to check speed, and I knew him to be very careful. As he didn't seem to take heed of the whistle, I shut it off when we were running down upon him, and called to him as loud as I could call. What did you say? I said, Below there, look out! Look out! For goodness sake, clear the way! I started. <sighs> it was a dreadful time, sir. I never left off calling him. I put this arm before my eyes not to see, and I waved this arm to the last. But it was no use. Without prolonging the narrative to dwell on any one of these curious circumstances more than any other, I may, in closing it, point out that the coincidence that the warning of the engine driver included not only the words which the unfortunate signal man had repeated to me as haunting him, but also the words which I myself, not he, had attached, and that only in my own mind, to the gesticulation he had imitated. When you're dealing with the supernatural, sometimes it can be hard to know what's real and what's not. And for the signal man, well, that turned out to be a pretty important distinction. One more quick note about that last story, by the way. As I mentioned in the intro, Dickens often drew from his life experience in his works. The signal man was no different. In fact, Dickens was in a train crash the year before writing this story. It was actually a pretty serious accident where several people were killed, and Dickens himself was in the only rail car that didn't completely derail. Dickens was able to help some people survive the crash, and the incident affected him pretty profoundly for the last five years of his life. Well, thank you so much to K.S. Anglesey for submitting her stories to the show, and if you've got a story to submit, you know what to do. Hit me up on any of the social media I mentioned earlier, at Podcast, or email your submission to syypodcast at gmail.com. Of course, you can also request any stories using that same method of contact. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I'd love it if you spread the word in whatever way you see fit. Or if you're interested in supporting the show financially and helping to cover the costs of production, I'd greatly appreciate it if you visit the Patreon page at patreon.com slash syypodcast. Thank you so, so much to my generous patrons who have gotten the ball rolling there. 
For a full list of music and sound effect credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Uh, next week, we'll be revisiting a territory we first did in the first season, with more tales that were required to be told just so. Until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>